Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. So today's episode is all about cooking oil. Thank you, Craig Shapiro, for the introduction to our guest today, Jeff Knobs, who is the founder and CEO of Zero Acre Farms. Zero Acre Farm is on a mission to remove destructive vegetable oils from the food system. Zero Acre Farms is an oil that's instead made from fermentation. Without further ado, here's Jeff. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Mike, I am good, and thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute, absolute pleasure. So excited to chat with you. Let's talk to me about like the very beginning. When did you start to care about health and science of nutrition? You know, I've always been interested in food and nutrition for whatever reason. I just sort of gravitated toward it. And even, even as a teenager, I would flip over ingredient labels and, and look at the nutrition facts of food. And I wanted to understand what I was putting in my body, where exactly that stemmed from. You know, I have my guesses. Most of my family was in medicine, including my mother, who was a, who was a nurse. Uh, and, and so kind of looking at nutrition through the lens of science and wanting to understand that was what I naturally gravitated towards. And there were some immediate family deaths from various chronic diseases. And th- that's when nutrition really took center stage in my life. And I wanted to figure out what makes people sick and, and how we can do something about it. And that's what I became very passionate about. So. I started reading biochemistry textbooks and molecular biology textbooks and uh, CDC guidance, you know, really anything I could get my hand on uh, to figure out what makes people sick and how we can prevent that. And what became pretty clear, in addition to having conversations with, with you know, various folks and experts, was that diet was at the center of this chronic disease epidemic we found ourselves in, where you know, more adults than not in this country, unfortunately, have a chronic disease. And four in 10 American adults have multiple chronic diseases. So 40% of the country essentially is, you know, has dementia and diabetes or, or heart disease and cancer. And that doesn't seem right. And it seems like we should do something about that. And I think diet is the best tool we have to try to impact that, uh, those rates in a positive way. That's really quite fascinating, just how you got interested in health since from a very early age. How are you finding too, just maybe on like, for consumers, because because obviously when we think a lot about what we're putting into our body, we've been thinking a lot more closely about this on the maybe larger scale for the past you know, 20, 30 years or so. But where do you think consumer education is coming from? Is it coming from like our traditional healthcare um, providers and like our doctors and what have you? Or do you think that it's much more driven by maybe themselves and their curiosity and not from like an expert per se? You know, most of our education about what we should eat, we never really thought about because we simply ate the same way our parents ate and the same way their parents ate. And, you know, it was very generational and it was very cultural. And especially in the U.S., we find ourselves in a position where every generation feels like it needs to reinvent and, you know, redefine what constitutes a healthy diet. And this has especially been the case, to your point, in the last 20 to 30 years. Frankly, more people get their dietary and nutrition and health advice from the latest podcast that they listen to, from the latest uh, book that they picked up, the, the latest conversation they had with a friend over dinner about 
you know, what, what is now the latest unhealthy or, or healthy superfood thing. And then the, the guidance from, say, the FDA or the USDA has a much larger impact on the foods that are provided to the military, to, you know, in nursing homes, in school lunches, but frankly is having less and less of an impact on day-to-day how consumers choose to eat. And most of that information, you know, is coming from individuals with influence. And uh, that can come through a podcast, that can come through Instagram, or that can come through, you know, a book and conversations. Um, So it's been really interesting to kind of see how that's unfolded over the last couple of decades. How did you think in terms of what you wanted to accomplish in maybe specific categories as well? I mentioned that most of my family was in medicine. The exception was my father was an entrepreneur for most of his life. So when I come across a problem, the idea of starting a business is just what seems you know most obvious and natural to me. So when I realized there was this massive problem of, hey, we're not eating the right foods, the idea of, of introducing something new with a, you know, some sort of commercial effort just made all the sense in the world. So that's, throughout my 20s, that unfolded um, through various businesses from CPG businesses to restaurants, software, and, and what we're working now on at Zero Acre Farms. And I, I think you know, education is a, is a hugely important piece of trying to have a positive impact and get people to change their diets in, you know, in a meaningful way. But the other thing that's really helpful is simply having an alternative that's better. And the example I like to give here is like in the case of electric cars, we, we could have tried to convince everyone to stop driving altogether or to only take the bus to work, or we can just introduce better cars that happen to be electric. And, you know, and then you don't have to think and worry so much about your transportation decisions. Um, you, know, you can just use the better product and, and it happens to have this environmental benefit. So that's the way I tend to think about problem solving as well is a combination of education around what the problem is and you know, what some potential solutions are. And then using entrepreneurship to actually offer a solution where the, the consumer doesn't have to make a, a giant sacrifice in order to do the thing that's better for their health or, or better for the planet. As you mentioned, you're a, a very successful entrepreneur. You've started um, a few businesses all around and something to do with in health and nutrition. When did you start thinking about what you're currently working on at Zero Acre Farms and alternatives to vegetable oil? It is a, a fairly unique topic and not something people spend a ton of time thinking about, which is uh, oil and specifically, you know, the oil we eat, not the oil we pull out of the ground. But I've been strangely obsessed with that topic for a while now. And I, I think part of the reason is that certainly there are a number of foods we eat that we shouldn't be eating so much of and, you know, things we consume that we should either be consuming more of or shouldn't be consuming so much of. But what's intriguing about healthy fats and, and unhealthy fats is if we can ditch vegetable oils, and I can talk about why many vegetable oils are so problematic, and replace them with healthy fats, if anything, our food tastes better. And when we give up things like, I don't know, refined flour or sugars or other things that we should be consuming less of, we're definitely making a sacrifice. You know, like muffins and donuts are delicious, and so to, to give those things up, our taste buds might, uh, might have an issue with that. But getting rid of vegetable oils is like we're just getting rid of this, this not tasty, rancid, oxidized product. And I've been thinking about this problem for a long time now. So when I was doing all that research around what makes people sick, I kept coming back to oils and fats. And I had mentioned, you know, looking at CDC guidance, the CDC says there are only a few things that really contribute to chronic disease, you know, primarily alcohol consumption, cigarette smoking, physical activity, diet, poor diet. And when you look at those four things, we've actually been doing a better job across all of them. So 
we're smoking significantly less, we're actually exercising more, we're drinking far less alcohol. And you had mentioned the uh, standard American diet, kind of classic food pyramid. We're actually eating far more closely to the food pyramid than we have. So we're eating less sodium, less cholesterol, uh, less saturated fat or no more saturated fat. We're eating more fruits and vegetables. Uh, We're not eating any fewer micronutrients. Um, So we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, yet chronic disease rates continue to skyrocket. And the one major food that has increased in line with increasing rates of chronic disease are vegetable oils. That means canola, soybean oil, corn oil, safflower oil, palm oil, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, There are a number of different vegetable oils now. And that's just correlation. Uh, You know, that doesn't prove causation per se, but there are a number of randomized controlled trials too that show when we consume a lot more vegetable oils, uh, bad things happen for our health, you know, ultimately higher risk of death, which is of course what we'd want to avoid. And the issue is these vegetable oils are everywhere. You know, they're, they're, they're in nearly everything we eat. They're about a fifth of all calories we consume. Vegetable oil crops are the fastest growing sector of global agriculture. And then they're leading to all sorts of health issues and environmental issues. Two of the top three drivers of global deforestation are vegetable oil crops. So as I was kind of coming across all this information, I was also running a a restaurant and we were having a heck of a time finding an oil to use in our restaurant where we didn't feel like we were making some giant compromise. Some oils may have been very cheap, but we felt like we were essentially poisoning our customers. Uh, Other oils that were maybe healthier had very strong tastes or weren't very versatile or couldn't be used for a number of applications. So kind of the, the combination of realizing how bad vegetable oils are and that there's a commercial opportunity to actually introduce an oil that's that's better led to founding Zero Acre Farms. And at Zero Acre Farms, you know, we say we want to give the world an oil change. We think that these oils that have come to account for for a huge portion of our calories, they're, they're not doing us any favors. And so we're, we're focusing a bunch on education and also focusing on offering something that's better. Thanks so much for sharing. How do we kind of get here as vegetable oil being like the main kind of type of oil that we use and, you know, and a bit of background in terms of the origin story? So oil used to come from whale blubber in the 1800s. That was like our primary source of oil, but um, they were overhunted and we needed an alternative for primarily industrial purposes. And we turned to cottonseed oil at that time. Cottonseeds and the oil they contain were acutely toxic to humans. So they were used primarily for machine lubrication and, and for industrial purposes. But at the beginning of the 1900s, a couple of promising entrepreneurs, they had done this a few years earlier, and they used partial hydrogenation to turn cottonseed oil into, from a liquid oil into a solid product. And separately, were able to detoxify the, the cottonseed oil so it wasn't acutely poisonous. Those brothers-in-law, uh, Procter and Gamble, introduced Crisco. And Crisco was the name they came up with to describe their cottonseed oil concoction. You know, most people associated cotton with like shirts and blouses and napkins, not with food. Um, So they needed a new name and they called it vegetable shortening. That soon caught on. Um, You know, vegetable oils aren't from like kale and broccoli and asparagus. They're from these seeds and grains and crops. But vegetable sounded healthy. So other oils started to market themselves as vegetable oils, whether it came from soybean or corn or palm or peanut or, or other crops. They were all just kind of broadly called vegetable oils. That sounded, that sounded very healthy. And then Crisco started to be replaced with corn oil and with soybean oil. A few decades later, there was a ton of consumer pressure. This was sort of the era of um, you know, saturated fats are at the center of, of all of our issues. 
And so there's a lot of consumer pressure to switch away from uh, saturated fats in, in deep fryers, in particular at McDonald's and, and Wendy's and Burger King, and to switch to, uh, to trans fats, unfortunately. So that change was made in the 1990s, and that really increased the production and, and demand for vegetable oils because they were now able to be partially hydrogenated to turn into this very stable oil that could then be used to you know, fry French fries and, and chicken at fast food restaurants. About a decade of that, we realized, oops, that was a huge mistake. Uh, trans fats are actually horrible for you. And you know, now we look back and we know that they were responsible for hundreds of thousands of, of deaths, unfortunately. Uh, so, so there was, again, pressure to switch away from this fat, in this case, trans fats, and to switch to other oils like palm oil, um, which started to lead to you know, all this environmental destruction uh, where, where palm grows, and also to other oils like vegetable oils. So we're using vegetable oils now. Trans fats were banned uh, in, in 2015 and ultimately put into action in, in 2018. So we're sort of just left with like soybean oil and corn oil and canola oil that is like the third or fourth option in uh, what should be used. But there's just no good alternative. A lot of these oils really came to be because of a growth of animal agriculture, particularly with, with pigs and chickens. And uh, a lot of soybeans and corn is grown to feed to those, those, those animals and you know, um, factory farms. And so the, the soybean or the corn is first pressed for oil. That's marketed as healthy and fed to the humans. And then the leftover meal is fed to the animals. I don't think uh, animals should be eating like soybeans and humans probably shouldn't be eating the oil, but this is where we, we've ended up uh, uh, after this, this hundred years or so of, uh, uh, of what's happened. And, and frankly, it's less of a, you know, there, there are less scientific reasons for this happening and it's more political and the result of a few strong personalities and, um, you know, various scenarios that, that now led to these obscure oil crops um, being such a huge part of our food system. How'd you eventually land on fermentation? We tested a bunch of different oils. You know, we were cooking with coconut oil, with olive oil, with palm oil, with palm shortening, trying to figure out what would work and we tried different animal fats. You know, animal fats use, raised using regenerative practices. Uh, you know, we, we tried it all. The issue is, especially when it comes to vegetable oils, you know, including olive oil, it's just not a very efficient process of producing oil. So the way it works is, and this is the case for the, the majority of vegetable oils, we clear a bunch of land. Unfortunately, most of that land is often in very biodiverse regions like rainforests where crops grow very productively. We clear that land, we plant seeds, we wait six months for those seeds to grow, we pluck the tiny seeds from those plants, press them for an even tinier amount of oil, and then that oil is ultimately you know, what's put into a bottle and, and, and sold as vegetable oil. So it has this really negative <clears throat> environmental impact, but also those, you know, we grow an entire plant just to press its tiny seed for oil. And, and those seeds or grains, they're only like five to 25% oil. Whereas when you look at producing oil by fermentation, which is what we're leveraging, the microorganisms that make up that fermentation culture are 80 to 90% oil. So to take a step back and explain what that even means to produce oil uh, using fermentation. So fermentation, you know, people are, are familiar with, uh, like a third of all the foods we eat are a result of fermentation, um, you know, bread, beer, wine, cheese, yogurt. And what does that actually mean, fermentation? So fermentation is the process of a community of microorganisms or, or culture, as they're called, a culture, and they transform sugars into and, and other plant materials into the you know, things we come to love like bread and thick tangy fermented milk is yogurt and fermented barley uh, you know produces alcohol and co2 to, to make beer 
turns out there are also cultures that produce oil. And so these communities of microorganisms, instead of producing lactic acid or carbon dioxide or, or other fermentation products, they produce healthy fats. And it's a really incredible and efficient way of, of producing oil. And it results not only in this really low environmental footprint because it's so efficient, but also in a really incredible healthy fat profile. Way more of the good, less of the bad. And it just tastes really good too, which is, which is really helpful when you're trying to replace a harmful product when the customer doesn't have to make some taste sacrifice. That certainly makes our job a lot easier. There's a bit of a challenge in what do we call this? So when an oil is produced using the method of fermentation, we don't have a word like beer or yogurt or cheese that's used to describe these other fermentation products. Um, so we decided to call it cultured oil. We think that does a good job of you know, kind of describing, describing what it is and, and without using overly scientific terms. Uh, and, and cultured oil now is, is our, our first product and, and what we're selling. How do you also think about scale? How does it work with your own supply chain and, like, and the actual overall process to create a cultured oil at scale? The production of cultured oil requires about 10 times less land than oil crops. We're working to get to zero. Um, you know, the, the name Zero Acre Farms is, is a reflection of our goal and that we have zero acres harmed and you know, zero deforestation. But it, while it kind of rounds to zero, it's, you know, it's not actually zero land completely, but we want to get as close to that number as possible. And right now, through, through our supply chain, you know, much of the supply chain is, is the same supply chain that anyone else is working with to get the oil into a bottle and you know, get that bottle into a cardboard box and, and have that uh, shipped, shipped to the customer. You know, I, I think what's unique is the first parts of the supply chain and how cultured oil is, is actually produced. And we, we don't currently own our own production facilities. And that's part of the reason that we've we're bringing a product to market having raised uh, a little over $30 million as opposed to you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And so we're able to leverage you know, not, not only the research that's been going on in this space for, for decades, but also the, the fermentation capacity of, of other companies that are able to produce the uh, raw material for, for cultured oil for us. Um, so that's very, that's very helpful when it comes to bringing this product to market and having those important supply chain partners. I know you didn't raise you know, hundreds of millions or a billion to kind of verticalize your supply chain, but you still raised $37 million, which is still a pretty good chunk, especially for, I know that you're definitely a food tech company and, and you know, really have your own IP. And you know, there's definitely, obviously, product innovation there. But when you were thinking about fundraising, what were the most expensive parts to, especially on like the R&D side, to kind of get um, cultured oil off the ground? It is a capital intensive business for sure. So we knew we would need to raise money you know, from the get-go. Um, we, we did self-fund it for a little while at the beginning just to kind of get things off the ground. But we knew we'd need to raise money. You know, It's not cheap to um, do something innovative and, and to you know, do fermentation at scale and that sort of thing. Um, so what we found, especially kind of looking back and talking to investors uh, that, that they found intriguing was that there's this huge market. Vegetable oil is the most consumed food in the world after rice and wheat. And we're making more of this stuff every year globally than beef, chicken, cheese, and shrimp combined. So massive, massive market. And because it's doing so much harm, there's also this massive opportunity to have a really positive impact if we can replace all these vegetable oils with something else. The big question was, what is that something else? And we think fermentation is, is the way to get there. But even if there's you know, some fraction of our mission is achieved, um, the, the impact would be 
really, really enormous. And so what's expensive is research. Uh, you know, just like setting up the the fermentation research, all that equipment is really expensive. The people who are experts and able to actually do that, um, you know, people are extremely valuable. People are also aren't cheap. And when we were raising, you know, raising the the seed round and even going into the Series A, um, there was the opportunity to do something really big. And I think a lot of our investors looked at the amount of money actually needed in the scheme of things um, for for what the opportunity is. You know, it was it was v- very worth investing into. Backing up a little bit, what else did you think about what was wrong or or tough about coconut oil and avocado oil and maybe some of the other alternatives to vegetable oil that were currently in market? Yeah, we, we looked at whether these could be viable alternatives. So with coconut oil, coconut oil only grows in the tropics. It grows very slowly and it there have been studies on this. It actually has the, the most negative biodiversity impact per liter of oil of any oil out there, even compared to palm. So from an environmental standpoint, you know, and biodiversity standpoint, coconut oil is the worst. And it has a really strong flavor. So you don't always want all your food tasting like coconuts. So it didn't seem like a good contender for really being able to, to solve the problem. And then coconut oil is also a solid fat. A lot of uh, businesses and consumers you know, like using vegetable oils, sometimes like a canola oil or something, because it's liquid and it's just easy to work with. So yeah, that, that's coconut oil. And then when, when you look at some of the other oils like olive or, or avocado oil, um, olive oil you know, tends to have also a, a fairly strong taste and isn't great for cooking, you know, has, has a lower smoke point. And some of these oils also, like if you've ever made, ever made a salad dressing with avocado or olive oil, it, it tends to clump up in the fridge after a, a few hours or a few days. It starts to kind of solidify. And, and then, yeah, you, you know, it's, it's not always great at high heat in the case of olive oil. What we're really excited about with, with cultured oil is that it's, it can be used for both. And we say it's kind of the, the one oil to rule them all because it, it, it stays liquid in the fridge. You can make a salad dressing or a marinade and it won't clump up in the fridge. And it also has one of the highest recorded smoke points that we could find. It's very stable at high heat. Uh, so yeah, you, you, you can really use it for everything. Every other oil just required some sort of compromise or sacrifice. You know, the, the oils that maybe were lower in the bad fats and better for our health tended to have some of the biggest environmental negative impacts or, you know, had, had very strong flavors and weren't great for culinary purposes. Yeah, we felt like we just, we had to bring something to market that was better. What's also great about culture oil is the taste. And you're not really making a huge leap to a new type of taste, because um, of course, you know, in any consumable, you know, taste is kind of always, you know, usually the number one priority for consumers. What does it taste like? Especially if it's going to be used as well, if you can use it in salads, not only for cooking. How would you describe it? We describe it as a really clean, neutral taste. If you put like your oil sommelier hat on, and you know, you you just have the oil straight up like we do, you might pick up subtle notes of nuttiness or butteriness that's pretty tasty that you know is, is good in all foods but yeah there, there's no strong bitterness no strong flavors it's pretty subtle really clean can be can be used for a number of things you know it could even be combined with something like a toasted sesame oil or um, an extra virgin olive oil if you're looking for a little bit of a distinct flavor and what would be cool about doing that is something like olive oil you know combining it with cultured oil you you create something that's more stable and something that would you know, stay liquid in the fridge. Because of that flavor, that taste, it can really be used for everything. Do you believe that you can eventually compete at a price level with vegetable? So vegetable oils have actually like quadrupled in price in the last four years. Wow, okay. That certainly makes our job easier. 
And not that we did anything to, to influence that. That certainly makes it easier. Uh, we're not going to be we're not going to be cheaper than like palm oil or soybean oil uh, in, in the next couple of years. I mean, if it quadruples in price again, then who knows? Maybe maybe I'll be I'll be wrong. But yeah, th- th- there are a number of ways to bring down the cost, and a lot of it just comes through continued research and you know making the process even more efficient, as well as just economies of scale. And any new product is not going to, by definition, is not going to have economies of scale yet. So even all the little things like, you know, the bottle and the cardboard box that ships in, you know, even those things are, are really expensive for us right now at, at this low volume. So all those costs will come down pretty significantly. And when we sell to businesses, you know, packaged food companies, for example, there just aren't as many of those other costs. You know, we're just shipping large amounts of cultured oil and, and big totes. Then the price is more competitive. Still, you know, over the course of the next couple of years, it's not going to be palm oil prices, but it's in the neighborhood of uh, of those of, of other premium oils. Since oils, I think when we began this conversation, you mentioned how oils are just not an area that people kind of think about, right? Um, you use it for food, what have you. How do you get consumers to care? How do you think about consumers actually, you know, that kind of consumer education piece about Zero Acre? How are you approaching that? This is how most kind of categories or movements start where there's like a you know esoteric corner of the internet that really cares about something and then before you know it it's like mainstream I saw this firsthand with with keto it, you know the the uh, ketogenic diets it used to be a very strange thing that you would measure your blood ketone levels and completely remove a you know a macronutrient from your diet essentially and carbohydrates and then didn't take long for it to be mainstream and everyone from your mom to Kim Kardashian was on a keto diet. And I think that's what we're seeing actually with people who are avoiding vegetable oils or industrial seed oils, as they're sometimes called. You know, more in the 1990s, it would have been very different. Everyone was hailing canola oil and corn oil, you know, uh, Mazzola corn oil and Wesson soybean oil. Uh, These were the heart healthy alternatives. And now more and more people are kind of raising an eyebrow at the idea that we should be guzzling canola oil and corn oil and soybean oil. You know, they don't have the healthiest halos. And that's really only changed over the course of the last couple of decades. And I think will continue to change when more and more people and influencers and, you know, regulatory bodies start to realize how problematic these oils are. A big part of what we do is we partner with the people who have large audiences and can speak eloquently to this subject. And those are, uh, you know, kind of, kind of like we talked about earlier, those can be folks with podcasts, those can be folks with big Instagram followings, those can be folks who share their culinary creations on TikTok. And, you know, we're getting cultured oil into their hands and they love it and, and they spread that message. How do you also think about trends overall and better for you and different kind of diet profiles that people are maybe navigating to? For example, when you did, you know, Perfect, it was, I'd, I'd imagine it was very much targeted towards, you know, people that were interested or doing the, the ketogenic diet, for example. And it seemed like quite, you know, targeted, especially like in the name for that. But it seems like in, in this case, Zero Acre Farms, it's a bit more broad. It can serve, you know, maybe a, a more variety of, of different kind of diets and things. So it seems like a bit, it, it seems like you're in a, in, in a great place to, to kind of win more broadly. The mission we're on that we stay focused on is um, we need to get rid of these harmful oils and replace them with healthy, sustainable fats. And that solution can be a part of a number of different diets. Different dietary tribes look at fats in in different ways. Um, But one of the things that's cool about cultured oil is it's extremely high in monounsaturated fats, which are the the heart-healthy, heat-stable, you know, saturated fats are super controversial. Other types of fats are controversial. 
everyone kind of agrees monounsaturated fats are great. So there's not like some huge battle we have to have there over convincing people that they're healthy fats. It's widely accepted no matter, no, no matter what diet you follow. As a consumer and as someone who is passionate and maniacal probably about your own nutrition and, and, and what you eat, how do you think about this question when you're analyzing products about what you eat in terms of what's better for you versus better for the environment? Because it seems like we're also kind of like, at like a bit of a bifurcation as well. Yeah, and um, it's really unfortunate. You know, it, it's it sucks that you'd have to choose over, you know, choose between doing the thing that's good for you and choo- doing the thing that's good for the planet. And then you could even throw a third variable in there, which is like what actually tastes good. And you could be eating just like, uh, I don't know, like raw lettuce and quinoa every day and be patting yourself on the back. But how sustainable is that really? How long is that going to last before you just like, go back to the fries and cheeseburger? So yeah, that, that's that's a really important component as well. And with, with cultured oil, from the beginning, the intention was you wouldn't have to make a compromise. And both human health and planetary health are, are very core to our mission. And it's one of the reasons we're a public benefit corporation is so that we can actually make decisions based on what's what's best for that, you know, that mission, uh, as opposed to just what's best for the bottom line. Certainly in other areas of food tech, you know, we, we've seen that as well, where maybe a product is, is marketed as better for the planet, but then there are questions about the, the healthfulness of that product or, you know, whether it tastes very good. But fat is delicious. You know, fat makes everything taste better. And it's, it's the source of fat, namely vegetable oils, that are problematic. So our core belief is you don't have to ditch the delicious food. We can keep all the delicious food we just need to ditch the vegetable oils and then that delicious food becomes either a whole lot less problematic or you know goes from being a not so great food to actually a totally fine food so yeah it has to taste good and then i think the next question is will this benefit me you know especially when you look at, at data and consumer polling what consumers care about is is this good for me is this good for my family and then after that comes will this benefit the future of the planet and certainly there are some consumers who put the environmental benefit as you know, front and center when making a purchasing decision. Certainly it's not the majority of consumers yet. All those variables are, import, are, uh, are important and different people have different priorities, but most people are still making selfish decisions. You know, understandably, it's got to taste good. It's got to be good for me. If it can also have an environmental benefit, great. What's the one company you most admire and how do they impact you? That's a really hard question to answer because this goes for books I read, people I talk to, you know, companies I looked up to, which is, frankly, I don't think there is one company where I would just kind of want to copy and paste. But what I really appreciate and enjoy doing is pulling bits from different companies you know, that I respect. So I can give you a few examples. Um, uh, and again, not to say that I admire everything they do or even most things they do, but certain companies are, for example, the most valuable companies in the world for a good reason. And you don't always have to reinvent the wheel. So I think literally the companies that have been most successful are good places to start. Um, and they're most successful for a reason. So like Apple and their, and the simplicity of their marketing messaging, I really look up to Tesla and how they've defined a category and how much they've innovated and the impact they, that they've had on climate. Patagonia and their commitment to regeneration and to sustainability. Reading a book on on Amazon, um, and I've been following Amazon's journey for for a long time now. You know, having uh, an e-commerce background, and they are just relentlessly focused on on the customer, and they have these very key leadership principles that drive them. So I, I love being able to kind of pull different learnings from different companies and uh, of what they do well. And then also, you know, like uh, watching some of these shows on like WeWork and uh, and Uber and. Theranos, also some very clear signs and learnings on on what not to do from certain companies. 
That's a really great point. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? If you can choose one, if it's a couple, then that's totally fine. Okay, I appreciate the flexibility. Personally, I'm kind of a science fiction nerd and there's a book, a series called The Three Body Problem. This inspired me professionally because this was a book or series that spanned billions of years and you know multiple galaxies and multiple universes and you read that book and it kind of just puts your day-to-day problems into perspective and seem not so important when you're looking at a time scale of, you know, the universe or billions of years. And then also just the like the original kind of self-help and management books. Um, there's a book called Think and Grow Rich, which is all about, um, you know, kind of like how you channel your, your uh, desires and interests and rich, not just in terms of money, but kind of having a rich life. And that book was really, really impactful. The last one I'll just say on, on personal is, I think the name of the book is actually just The History of the World. Um, but, but there are others. Reading about history is also eye-opening because you start to realize that you know, all the stuff we're dealing with, uh, kind of like on a personal and societal level, most of it's just the same problems with kind of a, you know, a different outer layer. As a, a human culture, we've been just dealing with the same stuff for thousands of years. And speaking of you know, perspective, like reading about the universe, reading about history is also a good way to have perspective on, on today's problems. And then professionally, so I mentioned autobiographies, like reading about you know Amazon and, and others. Um, really appreciate those books. Similar to you know the, the books I enjoy personally, um, I, I like going back to the kind of like the old school business books, like Peter Drucker, who has written books on management. You know, so many of the modern management books are kind of just pulling from that. You know, it can be a little dry at times, but I really appreciate reading those kind of like core original materials on things like business management. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited to add a few of these to our book list. That's that's great. My final question to you is, what's the biggest piece of advice for anyone that's founding a business? Definitely reconsider it. It is a ton of work and it's not like some easy, glamorous thing. It's very, very difficult. But if you, know, if you can't help but start a business because you just feel so called to it, then it can also be incredibly rewarding. I think the main advice would be to question the status quo. Just because there's a way of doing something, that doesn't mean it's the right way or the optimal way to do it. It usually just means there were these circumstances or politics that, that led it to being that way. And, and then the second piece would be to talk to people and do it as, as frequently as you can. There are so many things in business where you, you can learn from others' mistakes. You don't have to make them yourself. But at the same time, don't get caught in analysis paralysis where you're like, okay, I'm just going to talk to people for the next five years and then you know, eventually start a business. Once you feel ready to go, you should just do it. And then, and then when you dive in, that's, that's when the real learning starts. Awesome. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Uh, and thank you for your time, Mike. It was great. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Jeff. This is certainly a new category that we haven't explored yet on the show, cooking oil. And so really appreciate him coming on and telling us about the better for you option that he's created at Zero Acre. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.